the very first time I ever ran, I didn't win. I didn't go out and try to change the election. I said, whoops, work harder next time, lady. Last week, a woman named Norma Anderson sat down with my colleague, reporter Patrick Marley, at her home in a suburb of Denver. Norma Anderson is a force in Republican politics in Colorado and has been for decades. I mean, you've been a Republican your whole life. I was born a Republican. My family was a Republican, raised a Republican. She is 91 years old, as sharp and as quick as they come. Norma was born during the Depression. She remembers what it was like to live through World War II. And she has been politically active for a long time. I probably have walked most of this county at one time or another for some candidate or another. So I just always was active. She was first elected to the Colorado State House in 1986, and she served for 19 years in the two chambers of the state legislature. She's got some big accomplishments, like creating the state's Department of Transportation and rewriting its school finance program. And she's universally described by other Republicans who were active at the time as a powerful person who could uh, find some deals, work across the aisle. But when she had a position that she believed in, she would dig in and she would usually win. You're the first woman to be majority leader in the House and in the Senate. How important is that accomplishment to you? What does that mean to you? No, that's nice. More important to me is things I could get done down there. I'd love to find solutions to problems. That's why I work on puzzles and read books and, you know, you find solutions. The reason Patrick tracked down Norma at her home in Colorado is because she is a plaintiff in a lawsuit that is headed to the Supreme Court this week. Norma Anderson believes that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection on January 6th. And because of that, she thinks that the 14th Amendment of the Constitution should disqualify him from the ballot in her home state. When you go through hard times, I don't think the younger generation truly understand how close they are to losing their democracy. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, February 6th. Today, we are going deep on Trump v. Anderson, the Supreme Court case that could reshape the course of the 2024 election. This case is specifically about whether Trump can be on the primary ballot in Colorado. Back in December, the state's highest court ruled that Trump was ineligible because of his role in January 6th. Now, it's up to the U.S. Supreme Court to consider the appeal. And depending on what they decide, it could affect whether Trump is eligible nationwide. In this episode, we'll hear about the legal arguments that are likely to be raised. And we'll talk to a historian about the origins of Section 3, this little-known part of the 14th Amendment at the heart of this case. But before we get there, we'll hear more from Norma Anderson about how she decided to fight this legal battle. As someone who was so deeply involved in Republican politics in her state, 
when did her attitudes about the direction of the Republican Party start to shift? So she was in the legislature until 2006, and she left a year before her term was up. And even then, she started to express some reservations about aspects of the party. The party has become concerned about how other people live. I mean, I don't judge other people. Now, I may not like their style of life, but that's them. But where she really got concerned was when Donald Trump ran and got the nomination. What, what did you do in 2016 and 2020 for the presidential election? I didn't vote for Donald Trump. I would not vote for Donald Trump for dog catcher. Norma was opposed to Trump from the start. But she says that's not the reason she got into this lawsuit. It's not personal animus. It's because of what happened on January 6, 2021. He committed insurrection. And there was never a doubt in your mind that he engaged in insurrection? No doubt at all. I mean, he trying to overturn an election. For years, Democrats have gotten away with election fraud and weak Republicans, and that's what they are. Well, I had listened to part of the speech, and I thought, ah, another one of his ugly speeches. We have come to demand that Congress do the right thing and only count the electors who have been lawfully slated. Lawfully slated. And I discovered what was going on. And I sat down and watched all day. What was your... I cried. ...when you saw that? You cried. Yes, I could not believe our capital was being invaded. I know a little bit about elections. And we had good elections. It was a fair vote. Just because you don't win. Donald Trump believes very strongly that if you tell a lie often enough, and many, many times, people will believe it. He proved the case. And so what happens from there? How did Norma decide to do something in reaction to the events of January 6th? So this group called Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington has been focused on this issue of trying to remove Trump from the ballot through Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And a local attorney who she knew, Mario Nicholas, went about last year recruiting people who are Republicans or unaffiliated voters who might want to be plaintiffs in this case. I spent probably about three months calling and talking to people, getting who was supportive, who wasn't, who did we want to be a plaintiff. Mario told me they were very careful to find Republicans or unaffiliated voters, people like Norma, who it's hard to argue that she's not a conservative or not someone who is committed to the party. These are Republicans and affiliates who kind of cross the gamut. There are no, you know, just like, oh, there's just another Trumper kind of folks. These are Republicans who spent 
their lives being Republicans and conservatives and activists. What made you think of Norma Anderson in particular? Well, I mean, <laughs> when you think about it, call it Republican politics um, over the last, oh, I don't know, 40 years in uh, Colorado, you have to think of Norma. Unlike many of the people he approached who had to think about it, took some time to study it, get to understand the issue, she signed up immediately. Mario called me and I said yes. You didn't hesitate? Did not hesitate. Did you ever have second thoughts about deciding to sign on this? Never had a second thought. It's the right thing to do. At the time that Norma was considering participating in this lawsuit, like, did she know anything about the, like, legal argument that she was signing on to or this part of the Constitution that this all hinges on? I didn't know about Section 3 until lawsuits like yours. And no, that issue. I knew about it. Norma has at least two copies of the Constitution. I have one that I keep next to where I sit and watch TV. I also have one in my purse. So, Patrick, you spoke to Norma to understand the origin story of this lawsuit in the Supreme Court. But I want to take a second here to talk more specifically about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. I know that it has something to do with insurrection, um, and we're going to go into a lot more detail about that later. But just briefly, like, can you describe what this section of the Constitution says and why it's become important in this moment? Yeah, Section 3 says that if you have taken an oath to support the Constitution and then you commit insurrection, you engage in insurrection, you cannot hold office. The entire amendment was adopted in 1868, three years after the Civil War. And so its immediate focus was on ensuring that former Confederates didn't come back into Congress and other offices. But it was written broadly. They'd just been through a civil war, and they were mindful that something terrible could happen again. And so they wanted to make sure that any future insurrections or rebellions would keep people out of office if they had sworn an oath to the Constitution and then violated it. So my understanding is that the plaintiffs in this case are, of course, arguing that this part of the Constitution applies to Trump, that the kinds of public officials that they're describing, that the president counts as one of them, and that the uh, act of engaging in insurrection, that that is something that Trump did, and therefore he should not be able to hold office again. I'm curious, on the flip side, what are the arguments against the use of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment in this case as it pertains to Trump? Like, what are his lawyers going to argue? So they're making several arguments, you know, broadly, some have to do with whether Section 3 can be applied at all as it currently stands. Some address whether Section 3 applies to Trump specifically or the presidency generally. And others get into the details of what happened on January 6th and whether that was an insurrection. One of the many fascinating things about this case is that there's not a lot of precedent. There's not a lot of case law on this. You don't have, you know, controlling opinions that everybody can look back on and say, aha, here's exactly how Section 3 operates. There are a couple of cases, and they'll probably talk about some things from, you know, the, the late 19th century. But a lot of this is 
new, certainly in the modern era, for the court to consider. It feels like the backdrop to a lot of this is thinking about the court who is going to be hearing this case. Obviously, this is, at the moment, a conservative-leaning court. Three of the justices on the court were appointed by Trump. And I wonder how the lawyers for the plaintiffs are trying to frame their strategy to appeal to those more um, conservative justices. So if the court does have a six-member conservative majority, six of the nine are conservatives, appointed by Republican presidents. And so those bringing the lawsuit know they've got to get some conservative votes if they're going to win this case. And so they are really framing this as an originalist question, which, you know, the conservative legal movement for decades has really focused on what are the words, what was their meaning at the time they were adopted. And so they have very diligently put together arguments that say, in 1868, this is what people meant when they said insurrection. Mm. And so I think you're going to see a very history-focused set of arguments to try to appeal to justices who like those kinds of arguments. After the break, we bring you back to 1868 and the existential fears that brought about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. We'll be right back. I'm just curious, previous to three years ago, did you ever think that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was going to be, like, a major point of national conversation? Uh, No, no, I certainly didn't. At that point, nobody had ever heard of Section 3. That is historian Eric Foner. He's written books about the Civil War and Reconstruction. And just a few days after January 6th, he wrote an opinion piece for The Post about this obscure part of the 14th Amendment and how it could be applied to then-President Trump. I was called by members of Congress at that time for about two or three weeks, asking me to explain what this was all about. Wait, really? I love the idea of a historian being contacted by lawmakers to be like, explain to me what this says and what I should do about it. It's hard to explain this to congressmen, actually. (laughs) Uh, They live in a different world than a professor of history at Columbia University does. Since so much of this Supreme Court case will deal with the Civil War and Reconstruction, I wanted to ask him about the context of some of the originalist arguments that Patrick was talking about. So to prepare for this interview last night, I was like, why don't I just sit down and read the 14th Amendment? And what really surprised me was how long it is. I guess when I was reading this in like civics class way back in high school, that I was only reading the first paragraph, which is all about the things that we know, like equal protection under the law and due process and citizenship. But the 14th Amendment has like a bunch of different sections and it does a lot of things, which I was kind of surprised by. Yes, you're absolutely right. Well, it is the longest amendment ever added to the Constitution. Hmm. And I would say it tries to settle a whole bunch of issues that came out of the Civil War. Or to put it another way, it tries to put into the Constitution 
the northern or the northern Republican understanding of what the Union victory in the Civil War had accomplished and to make sure that couldn't be changed in the future. So let's get into Section 3 specifically, this part of the 14th Amendment about insurrection. And if you will forgive me, I am going to go ahead and read the entirety of Section 3. I'm sure that you know this all by heart, but you can just, you know, let the poetry of their words wash (laughs) over you again. So this is Section 3. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, but Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. What did I just hear? Like, what does that mean? (laughs) Basically, it means that ex-Confederate leaders are not going to take over the federal government or the state governments in the South, even if they want to. One of the things they were trying to accomplish with this amendment was to make sure that the southern states particularly would not fall into the hands politically of ex-Confederates. There were some fears that if ex-Confederates got the vote in the South, they could unite again, as they had before, with northern Democrats and maybe even win a majority in the next presidential election or in other elections, and you'd find ex-Confederates running the country. Well, and and that kind of gets to one of the questions that I had, which was, was this intended as essentially a form of punishment? Like, these ex-Confederate leaders, because of what they did before, they don't deserve to, you know, have the honor of holding office or of leading other Americans? Or was this about, like, a, a kind of direct form of prevention that they feared there would be another attempt to stage an insurrection if you had these people holding office? It's both, this provision. It's, it's both punishment, those who try to destroy the nation and preserve slavery— But it's also a very practical measure to try to guarantee that people who accepted the results of the Civil War and accepted the destruction of slavery, those are the kind of people who would be in charge in the South henceforth. The politics was very polarized then, just as it is today. Republicans in the North thought this was too mild. In fact, the major complaint in Congress was uh, this is not enough punishment for traitors who had launched a war that cost 700,000 lives. Well, it's interesting you say that that the reaction, at least um, from some of these leaders in the North, was that this was too mild. Because as you point out in some of your research and, and writing about this, is that as mild as it may have been perceived at the time, like it still wasn't even enforce that much, that that there weren't many situations where this was actually used to prevent people from holding office. It's almost never been enforced, really, just, just a few times. During Reconstruction, it was enforced on occasion when judges would say to some local official, the judge would say, well, you can't hold office. Everyone knows that you supported the Confederacy. 
and before the war, you took an oath to support the Constitution, so you're disqualified. Now, that's not a trial. It's not even a punishment. It's like meeting a qualification for office. It's the same thing as if what would happen if, you know, someone who was 30 years old was elected president. Well, a judge would say, I'm sorry, you can't be president because the Constitution says you have to be 35 to be president. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter what the election says. This is what the Constitution says. And in a certain sense, this is what it is. They just said, we're now putting forward qualifications for office in the United States. And some of them have to do with the past history of people who are holding office. I mean, well, but but it seems like, I mean, this, these are pretty, like, sparse appearances, right? There's <laughs> yeah, Reconstruction, and then, you know, one appearance during World War One, and then we get to January 6th. So I, I and I want to I want to kind of start diving into some of those arguments about how this section may or may not apply specifically to former President Trump. Mm-hmm. And the first question of is the office of president even included in here? And there's this language that you know we heard before, um, and I'm going to kind of delete all the clauses that seem to be <laughs> right. seem to me less relevant, but with a lot of like dot dot dots in between. It's referring to a person who has quote previously taken an oath dot, 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 as an officer of the United States, dot, 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 to support the Constitution of the United States. To me, hearing that, I'm like, that kind of sounds like the guy or, you know, theoretically the lady who gets up in front of the entire country every four years and puts his hand on the Bible and pledges an oath to defend the Constitution. And and it, it, it seems pretty straightforward that this would be referring to the U.S. president. Can you unpack that a little bit? Well, First of all, you're you're absolutely right that this is about, you might say, violation of an oath as much as about supporting the Confederacy, because it only applies to people who takes an oath to support the Constitution. Well, mostly it's office holders, right? Mm-hmm. As you said, the president puts his hand in the Bible, local officials, most Confederates would not, this would not apply to because they didn't take an oath before the Civil War. So it's kind of odd. It's a very narrow definition of those people who you don't want in public government. Basically, it's the people who Northern Republicans would call the slave power, Mm -hmm. the people who had held office at the time of slavery and then joined the Confederacy. So if you never took an oath, it doesn't apply to you. But does it apply to the president? Well, it does say in there any office. Mm-hmm. So that, to my mind, that's pretty clear that it's the president as well as anybody else. Now, there are lawyers who say, well, the president is not an officer of the government. He's a co-equal branch of government. There's hmm. the Congress, there's the judiciary, and there's the president. But I think that's absurd, actually. It's very clear from if you go back to the discussions in Congress back then that they assumed, you know, they've been actually trying to get rid of Andrew Johnson for a long time. So so there's that part. But then, of course, there's also like one would say the main part, which is about insurrection, you know, these Mm -hmm. government government officials who are listed in this long list um, that they are banned from holding office if they, quote, engaged in insurrection. But of course, that brings up the question of like, who decides if this was an insurrection and if Trump did, in fact, engage in it? Well, the 14th Amendment says who decides. Congress shall have the power to enforce this amendment. Hmm. 
they didn't actually trust the federal judiciary hanging over the Supreme Court back then was the infamous case of Dred Scott, where before the war, three years before the war, the Supreme Court had ruled that no black person could be a citizen of the United States and that Congress did not have the power to stop the spread of slavery into the Western, that they had to allow slavery to spread all over the place. So they didn't want to say the judiciary will decide all this because they didn't trust the federal judiciary. Hmm. But they did trust Congress. This is the debate in Congress. But what makes this situation so strange is that if Congress is in charge of deciding if a elected official engaged in an act of insurrection, like, they already asked that question, right? Like, we all watched this impeachment trial in which Congress impeached Mm -hmm the president for incitement of insurrection, but then ultimately the Senate acquitted him and that he was not found guilty of incitement of insurrection. So, like, in this case, it seems like the Congress has already decided on whether it thinks that engagement in insurrection on Trump's part actually happened. That's certainly a good point. But remember, the issues that an impeachment deals with is not quite the same thing. Hmm. Under the Constitution, impeachment is based on committing a high crime or misdemeanor. Of course, we have to define what those are. Violation of the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is not about high crime and misdemeanor. It's about supporting the Confederacy, basically. So there are different standards to which office holders are going to be held under impeachment and under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. It's possible to imagine someone being found innocent of one and guilty of the other. Oh, interesting that, like, you could say they did not commit a high crime or misdemeanor, but they simultaneously, like, don't meet this qualification that is set out in the Constitution. Right. Mr. Foner, thank you so much for explaining all of this. I really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure to talk to you about it. The oral arguments in this case will be heard by the Supreme Court on Thursday. And by all accounts, the court will be under pressure to deliver a decision quickly. I came back to my colleague Patrick Marley one more time to find out what he'll be watching for. So, Patrick, I'm curious from your reporting What do you expect will happen here? And is there a real shot that the court will rule to prevent Trump from appearing on the ballot? Well, I talked to one legal scholar who put the chances, this was some weeks ago, so perhaps he's adjusted his opinion, but about an 80% chance of success by Trump, which is a pretty good odds, but also 20% chance of losing is not negligible. The options for the court to keep Trump on the ballot are many. And the people who are challenging Trump's candidacy have to win 100% of their arguments. They have to find that the oath Trump took makes him subject to Section 3. They have to find that the presidency is subject to Section 3. They have to find that Section 3 is self-executing in a court like the Colorado Supreme Court can make this determination. They have to find that January 6th was an insurrection. They have to find that Trump engaged in that insurrection. They've got to run the table on every argument. And if they lose even one, Trump gets to stay on the ballot. Hmm. So it's a tough road for them. At the same time, they've gotten a long way. I mean, we've not had this happen before with 
a state Supreme Court finding that a major candidate or any candidate for president is an insurrectionist and is ineligible to be on the ballot. That in itself is a historic ruling. The question now is whether it holds up when it goes to the highest court in the land. What you're describing, the the steps that would need to be taken in a case where Trump was removed from the ballot in Colorado or other ballots, I mean, I think it speaks to a concern that a lot of people have, and, and not just conservatives, that this will ultimately be bad for democracy if, if Trump isn't allowed to run. That um, the idea that you have millions of Americans who are ready to vote for him for president and will be prevented from doing so, that it's going to put a ton of pressure on election officials, that it might undermine the country's trust in democracy to feel like they weren't given the option to cast a vote. Talk a little bit about what the potential drawbacks would be here if Trump is not, in fact, allowed to continue running. I mean, it's pretty hard to imagine how this would play out in the real world if the court were to determine that. You just had Trump dominate this primary season where, you know, almost all of his opponents have fallen away very early in the primary season. Nikki Haley is still running, but she's she's far behind Trump. It's hard to see how he doesn't get the nomination if the court allows him to run. If he is kicked off the ballots you're going to have a very upset set of his supporters at a time of intense polarization. You're going to have, you know, other candidates now scrambling to run. Do do people who dropped out like Ron DeSantis suddenly jump back into the race? I mean, we would be in a political moment unlike anything we've ever seen, and I think it's impossible to predict what that would be like. But to your point about the effects of this, you do hear people, not just Trump supporters, making this argument. There are ardent Trump opponents who feel that it would be bad to have Trump defeated in this manner, Hmm. being barred from running, and that they believe the way to beat him and to beat his brand of politics is to do it at the ballot box in November and sort of put away this political movement. I want to go back to Norma Anderson, the woman we met earlier, who's one of the plaintiffs in this case. I'm just curious, what does she think are the chances that she and her fellow plaintiffs will win? She feels good about her chances. Now this case is going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they're going to have arguments on February 8th. Three of those justices were appointed by Donald Trump. Are you concerned at all? Are you worried that that might... No, I think, I'm not concerned. They've ruled against him before. And I think they're, if they're strict constitutionalists, which I know Gorsuch is, I don't know how they're going to rule, but I think they'll look at it very carefully. Gorsuch comes from Colorado, who's on the Tenth Circuit here. Yeah, in fact, uh, a friend of mine used to babysit him. Norma Anderson sounds extremely chill about all this, but I'm curious, like, is she worried at all about what could happen to her because of her role in this lawsuit? She is not. I think her biggest concern is that Donald Trump could win again. My biggest concern is losing our democracy. Do you trust this court to make the right decision? I've always trusted the courts before. (laughs) 
And if they do allow him on the ballot, do you trust voters to make what you see as the correct decision to not elect Donald Trump again? If you vote with knowledge, you'll make the right decision. Will voters have the knowledge they need? I don't know. Will they? Patrick Marley is a national reporter for The Post covering voting issues. And earlier, you heard Eric Foner, who is a professor emeritus of history at Columbia University. Today, there was also another big development in the legal challenges of former President Trump. So this had to do with the federal prosecution of Trump for his role in January 6th, the case led by special counsel Jack Smith. Trump's lawyers had been arguing that being president made him immune from prosecution. But today, a federal appeals panel rejected that. They ruled unanimously that Trump can be put on trial for trying to overturn the 2020 election. This ruling doesn't mean that the prosecution of Trump can move forward quite yet. Trump has until Monday to appeal the ruling to the Supreme Court. If he does appeal, his D.C. trial will remain on hold until the justices decide whether to intervene. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced and mixed by Ted Muldoon and edited by Maggie Penman. Thank you to Whitney Leeming, Peter Bresnan, and Griff Whitty. If you are looking for the latest updates on the big news of the day, check out our morning news briefing, The Seven. We bring you through the seven stories that you need to know about every weekday morning by 7 a.m. You can listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Mm -hmm.